Hello, this is episode 17 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Lisa Gonzalez with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and MuniNetworks.org. Today, Christopher Mitchell talks with Joe Knapp, the IT director for the city of Sandy in Oregon. Joe describes how SandyNet began using fiber as a way to keep up with the ever-increasing demands of the community. Joe also discusses SandyNet's new project that uses sewer and stormwater infrastructure as a pathway for new fiber installation. Here are Christopher and Joe. I am here with Joe Knapp, the IT director for the city of Sandy, uh, Oregon, and uh, we were going to talk a little bit about what his community has done and is planning on doing uh, to make sure that everyone has access to good broadband. So welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. Joe, you've been uh, in Sandy uh, running a network for quite some time. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Sandy? Uh, what, where are you located? What's it like? We're in Oregon, just about 30 miles east of Portland. We're known as the Sandy's known as the gateway to Mount Hood. So we're situated basically right between Portland and Mount Hood. So we're, you know, it's it's a great location. We're 30, 30 to 40 minutes from all the wonderful amenities of of the big city of Portland. And then we're also, you know, 30 or 40 minutes from three different ski resorts on Mount Hood and all sorts of outdoor recreation activities up there. The last time I was in Sandy, I've been through it a couple of times, uh, there was a Hood to Beach or Hood to Coast was going on. Uh, yeah. Fantastic race. Yeah, that's uh, it's always an interesting time of year. I think we get something on the order of like 50,000 people come through the town on that weekend. So it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Sandy has been running a wireless network for a very long time, and we're we're going to talk in, in the, the end toward the end of the show about the fiber network that you're moving toward. But uh, I want to make sure people are aware of just how long Sandy's been working in this space. So, can you give us a little bit of history uh, in terms of how the city became involved in making sure everyone had access to good broadband? Yeah, absolutely. We we basically have started this venture by necessity. About 10 years ago now, the city was pretty bad as far as broadband connectivity options. In fact, at our own city hall, we, we were unable to get a DSL connection from the phone company, which was GTE at the time. Um, after quite a while of frustration, the city decided that we just needed to take care of it ourselves and started a municipal ISP. So initially, we actually started with DSL. We became a CLEC, which we still are, and um, began doing you know, line share DSL services across the phone company's infrastructure. And that has just continued to evolve over years as demand has increased and increased. And um, the next step after DSL was wireless networks. We've tried several different wireless technologies over the years. But currently, we're using a combination of um, 802.11, like in Wi-Fi, which is, you know, what you would have in your house. But we've got some high-powered outdoor equipment mounted all over the city on the order of about a little over 100 access points around the city. And we're currently serving about 1,300 customers with that system. And we've also got um, several wireless towers that we've constructed around the perimeter of the city that are serving our rural area as well um, to to help give those folks some options as well because they're still pretty despaired about what what is available in the rural area. GTE was actually later purchased by Verizon, and it was it's a very large company, and they were they were just not getting the job done then. Um, yeah, and now and they've also now subsequently been purchased by Frontier, um, which to Frontier's credit, they've been starting to roll out more rural DSL, which is great because you know there are areas that we still can't reach due to trees and terrain, um, and Frontier's come along and is and is you know rolling out some rural DSLAMs that are allowing that to be served. 
and our cable company also, that's another point worth mentioning, um, 10 years ago the cable company was Falcon and they had no broadband and then they were purchased by Charter who also had no apparent interest in upgrading their system to have broadband. So up until about three years ago now, our cable system was all one way and then finally Charter sold their, their franchise here off to Wave Broadband and Wave has since come back and started upgrading the system and, and is actually doing cable broadband as well now. So we do have three service options now. There's SandyNet, Frontier DSL, and Wave Broadband Cable. But we've found that uh, having established ourselves early in the market, we've, we've continued to be very competitive and people love having the local service option. I'm actually fairly surprised to hear that. Um, you know, a lot of cities find themselves having um, cable access that's available everywhere, and then DSL is available in a lot of places. And so without SandyNet and without having a cable provider offering broadband, then I would imagine there would have been a number of people who were totally unable to access the Internet at high speeds um, just because DSL just doesn't go very far in terms of um, being able to service everyone in the community. Yep, absolutely. Wow. Well, so SandyNet came along and it and it served that that vital need and and I know that when you and I met, I want to say two years ago now, um, we you already had plans to try and uh, get get in front of the next wave of innovation, the the fiber optic networks out to everyone. Uh, what what was your step? What was your next step? We've we've had some experience with fiber networks and and the way that sort of evolved is we we saw a need. I'd been with the city for a little over five years now, and when I started. On our internal network, we had no connectivity between our our facilities. So we have, uh, you know, we're a small community of about 10,000 people. We have five municipal buildings, and essentially they were all running their own separate networks. So we had no phone system integration between those locations, no network integration between those locations. So people are literally taking files back and forth on thumb drives, or it was crazy. So we started looking at options for getting those facilities connected. And um, one of the big driving factors behind that was so we could put in a voice over IP system and start saving some money on our phone bills. And we were actually able to, to work the numbers on that and, and show that we could get a return on investment on building some fiber networks out uh, relatively quickly to, that would enable us then to use those, you know, to have a more integrated network as a city. But since we had the SandyNet utility, we also looked at that as an, uh, an opportunity to start extending fiber service to our business customers because the path that we needed to take to get our municipal facilities connected just happened to go right through our, our whole downtown core and past several hundred businesses. So our first foray into fiber was to look at connecting those businesses uh, as sort of an economic development strategy of how can we provide cheap, huge broadband speed to these companies um, you know, to, to meet their needs while also accomplishing that goal of, of getting the city's network built out. That's worked out really well. We haven't, you know, we haven't had a lot of people take that service because it's, um, it's relatively expensive to do construction um, to those individual businesses. But a lot of our larger businesses, we've got almost, I think probably all but one of our real estate offices has taken the fiber service. And then um, the majority of our large employers in the city saw the, the tremendous benefit of that fiber connectivity and have taken that service. So we've got one company, for example, that does aeronautic manuals. Um, so they, they build and maintain these manuals for planes, for private jets and stuff like that. And they actually have a offsite facility in Costa Rica that they use our fiber connection to um, do hot replication of their server farm from Sandy to Costa Rica. It's, it's amazing. And, and that's, uh, 
we love getting testimonies from that business owner because he says, you know, without Fanunet, we wouldn't be able to do this. So it's, it's fabulous. And the, the price that we're able to do that at for our businesses is typically cheaper than a T1 connection for a full 100 megs to the internet. Um, so that was sort of our first step. And then what we've seen with our wireless network is over the last four or five years, the demand that, that has been placed on the internet due to technologies like Netflix and, and other video services has just been changing. And it's, it's a constant battle for us to keep up with it. Our, our city manager uh, accurately refers to our SandyNet crew as sort of like that circus act where the guy's spinning all those plates and keeping them up in the air. He says, that's what you guys do. You like have all these plates spinning and you're trying to keep them from falling with this wireless network. So we've seen this trend over the last several years of not being able to keep up with the demand. And um, as we started evaluating options to stop that trend, fiber seemed to be the logical choice. Um, so that's, that's sort of how we got to that next step. Um, was it a situation where that was about the time when Google announced they were going to be building fiber somewhere? It was about two years ago now, three years ago maybe. Yeah, and we so we'd already had at that point we'd already been doing some pretty significant build out of fiber in the in the business district. Probably the the biggest compelling thing was one, obviously the speed is phenomenal, but two, to this day we have not had. I'm going to knock on wood, but to this day we have not had a system outage on our fiber network, and it's been we've had customers in operation for uh, on the business side of things for like three years now, and we just never have outages. It's so solid. Do you have redundant rings? No, no. So building a ring network is, uh, you know, by design, it almost doubles your cost. So, mm-hmm. so we haven't done that. But, you know, all of our fiber is underground, so we don't have any any risk of uh, aerial hits. Since it's in the business district, we have sort of the benefit of, of the municipality, I guess, is everybody has to run pull permits from us to open the street. So we know anytime any street work is going to be done, and we're, we make sure that we're there to locate our fiber for them and say, don't, don't hit this, as lo- along with our water and sewer infrastructure and stuff like that as well as a municipality and people pull permits, uh, have you taken advantage of open streets to expand your fiber or have you had to open the streets, put in the fiber and close them back up again? Um, We have, you know, we've talked about the open streets of of doing an ordinance similar to, I think city of Portland has something like that. Um, And several cities around the country have done that. We haven't enacted anything yet, um, but we, we have talked about it several times. Um, And that's, I think it's definitely a good direction to move. Um, but with both of our both of our major projects, well, we've done we've done three major fiber projects so far, um, and all of those were just sort of existing buildouts. But the the interesting thing about Sandy is our first major fiber project was done in conjunction with an undergrounding project that we did in our downtown core to sort of beautify the city, if you will. We had um, before the project was done, we had over 200 street crossings in about a quarter of a mile distance through our downtown core of overhead cables. And the city council basically decided we wanted to eliminate that. So we sort of partnered with all the utilities that were in the area to relocate their facilities underground. And the city paid for a portion of that, and then utilities were on the hook to pay for a portion of that as well. And at that time, since we had this huge open trench, it was all, everyone sort of engineered together, this is where the facilities are going to be located. And at that time, um, the first main sandy net fiber conduit was put in the ground. And then we've extended that a couple on a couple different projects, one of which was in conjunction with the water line infrastructure install that we did. Um, and we've got another project like that coming up uh, with a pretty major water line tie-in that we're going to do that's going to have fiber conduit laid in that as well. 
So basically, when I became aware of Sandy, it was not because of all of these great things that you've just described. It was because of a contest that had a terrific name. Can you tell us where that came from and what it was called? Yeah, so we we ran a, a contest called the Why Wait for Google contest, and uh, essentially what happened there was, you know, as everyone in the industry knows, Google announced their project. We read that announcement and we were very excited, but it was very apparent to us that we were way too small for Google to consider us as an option. Right. I think Portland actually brewed a specific IPA, yeah. and uh, it's pretty hard to compete with. <laughs> yeah, Portland brewed. Yeah, they, uh, I think it was Bridge Bridgeport uh, Brewery made a gigabit IPA, which is actually a pretty good beer. But uh, that, that and there, you know, there was lots of crazy things that cities did, and, and we looked at the contest and said, "Boy, how nice would that be?" But there's no way that Google would come to us. We're just too small. So we started kind of throwing ideas around, and we decided to have a contest called "Why Wait for Google." And what we did was uh, sent out um, letters and media to our residents and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to open up a poll. So we built a website and we had a, a survey that people could go in and fill out. And uh, we essentially mapped those responses by neighborhood and said the neighborhood with the highest level of interest will be the subject of a pilot project that we're going to do to um, – see if we can make this fiber to the home thing work. And, you know, really the push for that came from our council. Our, our city council has been very um, cognizant and supportive of the fact that broadband infrastructure is critical for the economic success of a city. So they have been very, very behind this project and, and enthusiastically encouraged uh, my staff to move forward with exploring those options. So the problem with the Why Wait for Google contest was we launched this thing and we pretty much got equal response from almost every neighborhood in the city. So then we were kind of like, great, how do we pick? Um, but there was there was two, three neighborhoods really that were just a little bit above everybody else. And of those three, we kind of picked which one had, I mean, it was literally down to like one or two response difference in which one was going to go first. So of those three neighborhoods, we we picked the one that just had a slight edge and decided to move forward. So we issued a formal RFP at that point. Um, and this was all, again, for traditional build-out. So we, we did a, a formal RFP and received several responses. And we had, uh, you know, honestly, I don't remember where we came up with this number, but we had this number in mind of we want to provide 100 meg service, synchronous, 100 meg synchronous service for $39.95 a month. And that seemed like a, a pretty lofty goal, but we felt it was achievable. When the RFP responses came back in, we were so close on on the dollar figures that needed to be there, but just not quite. We we couldn't get the price down to where we we needed it to be with the with the take rate that we were getting. We ran, I mean, this ridiculous amounts of survey to gauge interest in these neighborhoods and predict what our take rate would be, and just didn't quite feel comfortable with uh, with where the numbers would be. The RFP, um, what was the model envisioned? Was this going to be a partnership of some sort, or was this an RFP of expecting that you would own and operate it and presumably bond for it or find some way of paying for it? The initial RFP was um, it was completely owned and operated by the city, and the, the financials would have been uh, probably a revenue bond was the model that we were looking at, although there was just some traditional um, loan options as well. So. The finance, I'm not a finance guy necessarily, but our finance director had all sorts of projections and schemes and ways of figuring out how this was going to be funded. And that was, you know, I'm very thankful that we have him on staff because he also said, you know, explain things to me like coverage ratio and how, 
you know, to get a revenue bond, you need to have these dollar amounts and this has to work this way. And he was able to give me very real numbers of what you need for a take rate to make this project work with what you want to charge the customers. Mm -hmm. So that, that was very helpful to have, you know, solid financial data going into it to basically be able to say at the end of the end of the day, this won't work. We can't safely do this. And and that's something that we've always a standing net. We've always tried to do things that were very minimal risk. You know, we've with our wireless network, we've grown out neighborhood by neighborhood because we did not want to come in and invest millions of dollars into a network to have it fail so that we would become another, you know, black eye for the municipal broadband initiative that's that's happening in this country now. We all know those stories of, of communities that have done this and didn't have the expertise or experience or were misguided by a consultant maybe and unfortunately things fail and and then the industry looks at that and says see we told you municipal broadband doesn't work right there are there are of course many accusations of failures um, that are not true but there are some that have had exactly those problems that you describe and I think it's by taking such a an intelligent view and, and making sure you're doing your research as Sandy's done that you you avoid that. The with the pilot project, we unfortunately, like I said, at the end of the day, had to said that we just can't get this to pencil out. And at that point, we decided as a city, we said let's let's have a brainstorming meeting here and see what options are available. If we can think of any ways to continue to push forward with this and keep the cost where we want it to be. So we had a, a meeting between. Um, my staff and our public works department, our engineering department at the city was there and a couple other departments have come in and said, you know, what can we do? And it was at that meeting that we said, what, somebody asked the question, what infrastructure do we own? And I think this was spurred by, we, we looked at some of these successful fiber networks like Chattanooga and, and other areas that have done this. And one common factor that that's exists amongst a lot of these networks is they own electrical uh, utilities. So they've got that network of poles and it just it makes it so much easier for them to install this infrastructure because they've already got the underlying stuff there. So we kind of asked ourselves the questions in light of that of what do we have available that's unique to us and, and how can we utilize that? And one of the things that came out of that was uh, our stormwater and sewer infrastructure that's, you know, that's an asset that's unique to cities. It's almost entirely municipally owned in the United States. Um, so we started to look at ways to, to use that. And that's, um, we'd actually gotten in contact with I3. They, they submitted an intense, intent to respond on our initial R, uh, RFP that we'd issued for our pilot project, but we never got a response from them. So I called them up and said, what exactly, you know, I know you mentioned some sewer stuff and it kind of sounded crazy. What exactly does your guys' product do? And that has since obviously morphed into this, project that we're going to undertake with them that's that's a, a very interesting model that's, that I think has never been done before. I do think it's a new approach in the United States, uh, but I think that the general technology has been around a little bit, and I want to say in Asia and in Europe. Absolutely. In fact, um, you know, I3 gave us a lot of examples. They've been deploying their this, this same technology. They've been deploying it for about eight years. Um, and a lot of their work they've done in South Africa. They told us they've got a lot of network deployments in the UAE, a few in the UK. Um, I think New Zealand and Australia, they had some small deployments as well. So from, a, from, from that perspective, um, we're pretty comfortable with the technology that they've proposed, and I think it's a very compelling solution. The model that's that's um, different than anything that's been done before is really how the capital investment on this thing is going to work. This is a technology in which you run the fiber cable through existing sewer pipes. 
Um, right. And so can you give us a quick sense of where it goes in, where it comes out? Um, I mean, obviously there was a, that joke that Google played back on April Fool's Day where it actually had a fiber cable, I think, snaking out of the toilet, but um, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't do that, right? Where does it, where does it come, enter and leave the sewer pipes? Right. So the sewer, it's, it's going to use sewer and stormwater infrastructure both. And the, the minimum uh, pipe size diameter for their technology is six inches. So that, that almost, uh, for our city at least, certainly limits it to just the, the main distribution cables of the network. So what, this, what their technology allows us to do is use our existing sewer and stormwater facilities to get our feeder cables or our trunk cables, if you will, out to the neighborhoods. So in our specific build, um, our, our central office, if you will, is going to be at our city hall. And from there, they'll run large feeder cables, like 432-strand uh, cables, into the sewer lines that will then go out into the neighborhoods. And then essentially, they come out of the manholes and up into the right-of-way you know, behind the sidewalk. And from that point, it's a traditional build to the houses. But where the tremendous savings on, on both uh, deployment costs and deployment time come into play is the, what's typically done with lateral drilling um, to, to get those feeder cables out to the neighborhoods. That's all just pulled through existing infrastructure. So they've, uh, they've been able to dramatically increase the de or decrease rather the deployment time. The speed with which they can deploy is tremendously fast, which inherently dramatically decreases the labor cost because you're not paying the crews to be out there as long. So they they were able to bring the network cost way down with this technology. Right. It also reduces the financing costs because you're not spending a lot of time with other people's money and not getting revenues back on it, right? You know, at this point, they're in um, deep in the design phases of the network, and we're going back and forth with plans. But they're very confident that they can have about a 90% build-out in less than nine months. Which is so for Sandy, that's about 4,000 premises. They figure they can get about 4,000 premises deployed in nine months or less. So let's talk about the the capital and the the financing model of that. How is this going to work? Sure. When we so when we initially started talking with I3, you know, we we explained to them what we wanted to do with the pilot project and so the direction we've been taking, and they said that's all fine and good, and we'd be happy to to help you with that. But um, would you be you know willing to entertain maybe a more aggressive approach and and we said sure yeah we'll we'll listen to anything you you know you want to look at and they said what if we take the capital investment and uh, not not just build to this neighborhood of 500 homes but what if we build out your entire city so essentially the model that we've agreed to with with i3 is they are um, doing all the capital investment in this network so they're building the network and they will own the network and the city has a 20-year agreement with them that we um, are committed to pay them on a per home pass basis with a minimum commit rate of 50% of the homes passed. So we essentially are paying them for half of the homes that they pass on the network. Um, and you know, our assumption obviously is that we're going to be able to get a 50% or greater take rate to, to make that happen. But the benefit of that to us obviously is there's no, you know, the major capital investment that we would have had to come up with a revenue bond or some other means of financing that. Um, that burden is no longer on us. We're just committed to make the monthly payment to them. As, and that, and the, the other great thing is that monthly payment sort of ramps up as the houses are passed. They they release those homes to us as being ready for service, and then we start making the payments once the fiber's lit up. And what is the payment? We've agreed to a rate of thirty dollars per home, so it gives us that margin of basically ten dollars per customer 
to uh, cover our operating costs, which is you know a very thin margin to cover operating costs, but we're we're used to working on a pretty thin margin, so it's nothing new for us. At that price, obviously, you're not going to have a lower tier. Are you going to offer one tier then? No, we're going to do two tiers. So that the 100 megs is the low tier for residential. So the 100 megs is our low residential tier at 39.95. A little bit of a bragging point. <laughs> yeah, and then um, we're also going to offer a gig, so a full gig synchronous for 99.95 a month. So how how is it that you, that you have access to the kind of backhaul that I mean, if I saw this from a private carrier, I would just assume that they were oversubscribing the heck out of it. Uh, how do you, how do you make it work in in rural Sandy? A, cu- a customer that takes a gig service, for example. If if we had 40 customers taking a gig, we're not going to have a 40 gig pipe to the internet because that's just unnecessary. Right. No. I, yeah. Absolutely. Everyone everyone oversubscribes to some amount, but I think some of the private carriers push it to ridiculous proportions, and usually municipalities are much uh, friendlier to the consumer uh, in terms of of being honest about what they're offering. Right. Definitely. And one of the tremendous one of the reasons I think that we can keep the price so low is. Um, due to a partnership we have with Clackamas County, um, which they were awarded a uh, BTOP grant to build a middle mile ring. So this is sort of a success story of, you know, why that middle mile infrastructure is so good. Sandy is essentially a corner on that ring in Clackamas County. So we have um, partnered with them to allow them use of our right of way. We gave them some conduit that we had to get them through various parts of our city where they couldn't be aerial. And then we also gave them space at, in our data center at City Hall to place one of their fiber optic distribution racks, basically a patch rack. So they've got, um, we have a 288 strand cable coming in from the west into Sandy. Uh, 144 strand extends east out of Sandy up Mount Hood. And then I always get these fiber count. I think it's a 212 strand goes south out of Sandy. So we're sort of like a corner on that ring with the spur extending out from us. And part of the part of the uh, deal that we worked with Clackamas County was, you know, we'll give you all these resources within Sandy to make this thing possible for you guys because we think it is a, a very important project. Um, and then in exchange for that, they gave us a couple strands on the ring. So we essentially have, uh, you know, dark fiber back into Portland at uh, no direct cost to us. So, you know, it was, a, it was sort of a trade that we did with them for the, the infrastructure piece. So they're they're getting effectively free rent in our data center and we're getting free rent on their fiber network. Right. We see, we've seen those trades uh, in a number of cases. And of course they're very commonplace in the private sector as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, you must have just an excellent um, contract in Portland or else you're just, um, there must be an assumption that you're going to be using so much that you'll be able to keep the rates um, low as you're negotiating with uh, providers back um, to peer with others and to, um, connect to the wider internet. Our internet connections, it's, it's pretty easy to get cheap access. Like if you're buying stuff at, at, at capacities of a gig, it's it's not difficult these days to get that at, at a pretty decent cost. The the problem for us historically has been transport. So to get to get the actual fiber path from Sandy back into Portland has always been very expensive. So to have that piece effectively eliminated by the county building this middle mile project has opened up huge doors for us to be able to get all sorts of bandwidth and provide redundancy because, you know, we're on a ring, so we can take that ring in both directions to, to either get to different points in Portland or to, to to pass to the same point, however we want to structure that. But, yeah, it, it has allowed us to, to really up our capacity to the Internet without adding 
uh, much cost. So we're, we're we're starting to run long, I'm noticing here. Um, but I do want to get to the point then. You said that I3 will own it and you will guarantee that revenue. Um, but my understanding is that the, the city has some options down the road um, to uh, to purchase it back. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. Like I mentioned, it's a 20-year agreement. And halfway through the agreement at the 10-year mark, there's a buyout option. Um, and, you know, we will... It's, I, would, I would say with almost complete certainty, we will exercise that buyout option after the 10-year mark. Um, so at that point, then we would, we, we will always be the operator of the network. So I3 is going to build it, and they're working very closely with us now in the network design of how we want it and what we need to meet our needs. And then once it's built, um, <clears throat> their contract holds them to you know, repair and maintenance of the network as well as any network extensions. If a if a customer wants to hook up after the network's been built, I3 sends a crew out and does that. So that's all spelled out in the contract. Um, so they'll sort of operate the network from a physical infrastructure perspective because it's their asset. But from the management and provisioning of the customer equipment, that's that falls to Sandy and its staff. But then after that 10-year point, when we when we buy that network from them, then it would basically completely remove them from the picture, and the network will be totally owned and operated by SandyNet. And at that point, you know, we'll obviously have to ramp up crews for the physical maintenance of the network and things like that. But we also will no longer have that monthly financial obligation to them. So it'll it'll open up a lot of opportunities there. So what what will the cost be in 10 years? Do you know what that is? Yeah, so the, the contract spells that out as basically um, as you look at the course of the agreement, we, you know, we're going to be paying them on a monthly basis. And the contract states that whatever the whatever we pay I3 for the 10th year of the contract, then we would take that amount and multiply it by two, time, two and a half times, and that would be the purchase price of the network. So we've run with our sort of projections of what our take rate is, what we're assuming we're going to get. We think the total cost of the city over the course of the 10 years, including the buyout, will be somewhere on the order of about $10 million, and which is uh, interesting in light of the fact that as we were running our pilot project, we also looked at data for building a fiber network for the entire city. And our costs uh, that we came up with to, to do a traditional build for the entire city was somewhere on the order of about $15 million. So we're effectively getting what, exactly what we wanted for two-thirds of the cost. Well, I certainly hope it uh, it works out well. It's, uh, it's it's always great to see these new approaches. Well, we're excited to have learned what Sandy's done. We're excited to see where Sandy's going. And I'm sure we're going to check in with you in, uh, in a year or two to see where you're at and get an update. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about the network. Yep, thank you. That was Christopher and Joe Knapp from Sandy, Oregon. You can learn more about the community and SandyNet at cityofsandy.com or visit muninetworks.org and search for SandyNet or Sewer to find out more about this specific project. If you have any questions or comments, email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on October 16, 2012. Thank you again to Fit in the Conniptions for the music, licensed using Creative Commons. This song is called Got My Modem Working.